0: Welcome back to the Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com or on Twitter and Instagram, at autofocuslit. I am the publisher of Autofocus, Michael Wheaton. Today on the show, we have a guest host. It's Aaron Slaughter, the managing editor of our online journal and author of the story collection, A Manual for How to Love Us. And she's in conversation with Emma Bolden. Emma Bolden is the author of several books, including the poetry collection House is an Enigma and the memoir The Tiger in the Cage, a memoir of a body in crisis. All right, let's get to it. This is Aaron Slatter's conversation with Emma Bolden
1: for a Small Business Accelerator that supports Birmingham's entrepreneurial ecosystem, and we have a life science fund for companies that are devoted to life sciences, whether it be therapeutics or devices or or testing or anything like that. So I've been spending my morning uh, doing my weekly reports and working on press releases.
2: Okay, that sounds exciting. So I know that you spent some time in academia, um, both because you write about it in your wonderful book, which we'll get to, of course. Um, when did you transition away from academia? What was that decision like? And and maybe, you know, how do you feel like those two worlds uh, of your job now and teaching or writing, how did those things collide for you?
1: That's a very, very good question. And I'm trying to remember exactly when I quit academia, but I think it was 2014 So I quit after, if you count me being a TA in grad school, um, I, I do because I think TAs are really really important and they are a neglected member of the academic community, along with instructors and all temporary faculty. Had to get that out. That's my soapbox. (laughs) But um, yeah, thirteen years. I spent thirteen years and. I kind of knew from the beginning that it wasn't for me. I'm not from an academic family at all. Um, My mother didn't go to college. Um, I think I'm the first person, at least on her side of the family. I am the first person on her side of the family to go to grad school. Um, And I think that that's still true. (laughs) So, um, yeah, it it was a strange world that I never quite felt part of. Um, not strange, but it was strange to me because I never really a hundred percent felt like I was part of it. And I just decided it was time to do something new. I had gone through a lot of major changes in my life. I had just had my hysterectomy and it seemed like the time to strike out and try something new if I want. So, um, I have to say that I feel like working in academia really prepared me for this position. Uh, It taught me a lot about research and it taught me a lot about writing. Um, Committee work really helped me when it comes to publicity and marketing and that kind of thing. Um, But yeah, and I, I actually feel like one of the, I started out here as the social media marketing person, and I feel that one of the best things a person could do to go into marketing is study poetry because it's a lot of the same skills. You've got to fit a lot of information in a very small place and you've got to think of a lot of constrictions and restrictions and find a way to find freedom in that. So yeah, I I do feel like there's a connection even though it seems kind of strange.
2: No, that's fantastic, um, and so true. And that actually kind of segues into the next thing I was going to ask you about. Um, you know, working sort of behind the scenes in literary journals um, and in editing as a writer. Uh, you know, which is something that I have experience with. And you were the former associate editor in chief of Tupelo Quarterly, is that correct? Yeah, that's cool. and then currently you're working with Screen Door Review, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, the work that you're doing right now, editorially, or, you know, what drives you to be involved in that side of publishing?
1: Yeah, I absolutely love editing. It's, it's one of my favorite things. There's just something that's incredible about my favorite is when I find a piece by somebody who hasn't been published before and allow them to get their voice into the world in the first place. Um, and I, I really appreciate people trusting the journals that I work with with their work because i know that it's not an easy thing um yeah and working with tupelo quarterly was incredible because i got to see kind of how the whole process worked Um, unfortunately i had to leave uh tupelo quarterly um, because my agent left the industry and i'm trying to get things finished so that i can hopefully start querying another agent um so i had to i had to quit to focus on that Screen Door Review. My work with with that journal means a lot to me because it's focused on queer voices from the South. Um, it means a lot for me as an asexual person uh, because sometimes we don't. Sometimes the a gets kind of left behind on the on the spectrum. Um, so it, it means a lot to me as an asexual person to edit for that journal, and it also just the existence of the journal. Um, I am always grateful to Alicia and Rachel, the two other people on staff with me, um, for starting the journal and putting it together because I feel like people don't often hear the stories of queer people in the South. And in a lot of places in the South, increasingly, it is dangerous for queer and trans voices to be heard. So, I consider it a huge honor to be on the staff of a journal that puts those world words into the world.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, and that was something else you know that I was interested in talking to you about. Um, you know, I grew up in the South as well, and you're from Alabama, right? And you've lived in Kentucky and Georgia. and are you currently in Birmingham?
1: I am well oh, I'm actually in Alabaster, Alabama.. <laughs> which is people always think that I made that up, but it's not, it's real. It's It's a beautiful, poetic
2: place to live. It sounds like. (laughs) Exactly. Um, But I'm curious, you know, uh, it sounds like you feel that Southern identity and your place in the South uh, is rooted in the editorial work you do. Do how do you relate to that as a writer? Do you feel like there are Southern influences or ways in which you feel compelled to write about your cultural background in the South?
1: That's a very good question too um yeah the south is a strange place because i i feel like it's my home but it's a place where i've never felt at home if, if that makes any sense um it, it's kind of like living in a home where somebody is constantly trying to evict you <laughs> honestly and <laughs> i i for for one thing or another enough i've kind of always felt that way um my mother's family is is of sicilian origin so it, it's it's strange because I also have like that cultural background as well. Um, but yes, I, there's just a constant tension, I think with my environment. Um, but both just in terms of the, well, the eviction notices that I get, but also the fact that it's, you know, it is my home. It's where I spent all of my, you know, it's where I grew up. It's where I was born. It's, it is my home. Um, and. I've found myself over probably the past five years writing about it pretty intensely in poetry. Um, and a lot of that has to do with me living in Georgia. I lived in Mississippi for a year and then I did what I never thought I would do, which is move back home. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, a lot of it has been not necessarily trying to resolve that, that tension because I'm not sure that it can be resolved, but, interrogating it and exploring it and trying to find out like what what does it what does that mean for me and what does that mean in terms of being a southerner period
2: yeah i love the (laughs) the metaphor of uh living in a state that's constantly trying to evict you that feels very resonant in the moment for me uh, as a floridian in higher (laughs) education and a queer person and yeah um yeah, yeah, it does feel like that sometimes. Um it <laughs> Yeah, and then that's also maybe a fruitful place, that tension as you mentioned is a fruitful place to write into sometimes. And that brings up a whole, you know, a whole other um world of themes and ideas and things that I see in your work, um, both as a poet and a memoirist. So like, um, I, in the work that I've read of yours, it seems like you're interested in exploring gender, the reliability or unreliability of narrators and narrative in general, grief, tension between internal and external worlds. Um, and I'm curious, you know, because you're a poet and a memoirist and it sounds like you're working on a novel right now. Is that right? That's correct. Okay, cool. So multi-genre person, love that, into that. Um, So, you know, what's your relationship to genre and exploring these themes through different uh, forms and different modes?
1: Yeah, I was extremely lucky. I went to a fine arts high school here in Alabama and majored in creative writing. So from the time I was in eighth grade to 12th grade, I spent three hours a day writing, which was incredible. And we also had to write in multiple genres. So mostly poetry and fiction. Um, we did later on have some creative nonfiction classes as well. So I feel like i have it was almost like learning two or three languages and well, learning what kind of communication or um, what kind of feeling was better for each of them for me. I tend to write primarily in poetry, so I'll I'll write something in poetry first before I can touch it in prose. It'll take me years to get to something in prose that I have written about in poetry. You can kind of see it in my books. Um, House is an Enigma, which is my third collection of poetry, would not, I mean, my memoir would not exist had I not written that. It runs through the ideas and approaches and explores the ideas and the stories that I explore in my memoir in poetry. And if I hadn't if I hadn't learned to understand it in that way, I don't think that I could have understood it in prose. Yeah. Um, something similar is happening with what I'm working on now because my first book was about the witch trials in early modern Europe and I'm using a lot of that research and a lot of those ideas in the novel that I'm writing right now.
2: That's so interesting. So it sounds like you find yourself um, maybe using like the compressed form of poetry or even maybe the compressed emotional experience of writing poetry to then expand out into a larger prose project. Does it ever happen the opposite way for you where you'll start writing an essay or something in prose and then you're like, actually, this needs to be a poem or it lends itself to poems later on?
1: I do. Absolutely. That does happen sometimes. I'll I'll start writing something and then I'll realize that I actually write my first draft of everything in prose in like these big prose blocks, and then sometimes I'll do little slashes for, the, um, for the, the line breaks. and sometimes I'll start something that I think is an essay and then I realize that I've put slashes in it. I'm like, oh, that is actually a pull.
2: I love that you kind of follow the enjambment if the enjambment's there it tells you like what what it's going to (laughs) be exactly
1: yeah and sometimes it just it just needs to breathe I realize that it needs more space on the page um and it's something that you kind of see in my memoir too because there are there's a lot of white space in the memoir and there are a lot of places that to me at least feel more like poetry than prose Mm -hmm. secretly
2: Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's something that I, I really love and want to talk about the form that your memoir takes. Um, you see your skills at, uh, not only like compression, right. In those vignettes, um, and poetic language and poetic timing, um, but also like the way that you collage the different vignettes because it's it's a sim- sort of chronological, right? Um, there's a chronological story being told, but there's also research in between. There's different moments that may be out of order chronologically. Um, and I, I'm very interested in that. Um, but I wanna go back to maybe the beginning of your writing journey, Mm -hmm. um, could you talk maybe a little bit about how your interest in reading and writing developed? And when you, I guess if there was a moment where you decided to be a writer, um, in a more serious or professional sense, what was that like for you?
1: I've always been fascinated with, with writing language. And I was very lucky because my my parents encouraged that especially my father like my dad when i was a kid my dad took me to the library every weekend that was like a big thing and if i was ever punished instead of like taking the phone or the tv away i wasn't allowed to go to the library that weekend and it was the worst thing ever uh, <laughs> so i've always been really interested in it. i've always been really interested in reading i remember The minute that I knew, okay, this is something that I want to be that I want to do for the rest of my life or I want to be deeply engaged in. And I believe I was in second grade um, and I was bored in the back of the of the classroom. I think it was like, um, oh, some it was some sort of grammar thing that I got finished with early. So I was bored and I looked was looking through my textbook and I came to Emily Dickinson's I'm Nobody Who Are You and it really was I'm probably going to butcher it but Dickinson says that uh, you know poetry feels like the top of your head's being lifted off and that was the moment for me where I was like oh okay this is this is doing something different and it spoke spoke to me in my experience in a way that nothing had ever spoken to me before and I just knew right then I was like okay this is it this is this is what I want to do.
2: Yeah. To to kind of take other people's heads off. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I, I love that. I love that poem. Could you talk a little bit about what, what it was about that fragment or that Dickinson poem that really spoke to you that you feel like entered you in that way?
1: Well, I don't know if you could tell, but I was a big nerd. (laughs) Um, I was a huge, huge, huge nerd when I was, well, I say when I was a kid, but I mean, now, I mean, obviously you, you can see the background behind me and all of the Star Wars toys behind me. Um, but I, I wasn't, I was, I was a big nerd and I was not popular at all. Um, people made fun of me a lot. And it was the first time that I had seen somebody say like, hey, I'm not popular either and I'm, you know, Going to sarcastically make fun of people who are popular, and um, talk to you about it. So It was like the first time that somebody spoke to me on on my level and made me feel somebody who other than my, than my parents made me feel like I was okay, and that I had company.
2: Yeah, Emily Dickinson is like the patron saint of uh, introverts. Isn't she
1: totally oh, is. <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Um, yeah. So you mentioned your parents a couple times. Um, and how encouraging they were of your creative journey, your um, journey into academia, um, even though they didn't share that background. So so what do your parents do for jobs?
1: Um, well, my mother, my mother, let's see, she worked at a fabric store for a long time. She worked at Calico Corners um, here in Birmingham. Um, but she she actually stayed home um, when with me when I was when I was younger. Um she worked at a couple places, but for the, for the most part, she stayed home. And my father is actually a controller at a car dealership. He's always worked in, in car dealerships. So he's an accountant, an accountant who like told me to read E.E. E. Cummings when I was. A kid. <laughs>
2: yeah, Is he a creative person? Like, does he, is he a big reader? Is he sort of secretly creative behind, behind his job? He's a huge reader. He's a huge reader. And I I think he's a very, I think he's a very creative
1: person. Um, It's only in the, since I've sort of moved into the business world that I've realized how much creativity goes into some of the things that you do. Um, So, yeah, I do, I do think that he's a creative person. My mom is hugely creative. Um, We, we spent a lot of time when I was little doing art projects and things like that. And she's, she's, an incredible decorator who's probably embarrassed by the Star Wars toys behind me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, do you think that because they had those, you know, that was just part of their personality, did that, because you hear all the time stories about, you know, people who go into academia or go into writing and have parents that aren't in that world, not really getting it or or wondering about, you know, what your job prospects might be or how you're going to make a life in an art. Um, Do you think that they're, personal inclinations towards art? Did that influence their encouragement? Or was it something else about the way that, you know, they were supportive of your your journey through that?
1: Yeah, I think that that's part of it. Art's always been an important part of my family. My grandmother um, play, could pick up any instrument and play it by ear. Um, and my grandfather drew a lot as well. So that's always been part of it. Um, I will say that they were deeply concerned with job prospects, <laughs> and when I, um, it, it was a big, it was probably like a two-year process to convince them to let me audition for the the School of Fine Arts, and their the whole thing the whole time was always like, you gotta, you gotta have some way to make money. So I was finally like, you know what? I can be a professor. That's what people seem to be doing. So there, there is something that I can do to make money. <laughs> so that helps So yeah, they 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 were super supportive, but they also instilled in me, like you know, you you have to be able to support yourself.
2: Yeah, and you you write in your book too about um, your interest in acting and in theater. And I am also a former theater kid. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and I think a lot of former theater kids are drawn to writing, um, especially really strong, like first person writing and almost like monologues. I guess a memoir is in some ways a monologue, right? Um, Could you talk a little bit about that? And do you see any connection between your interest in acting and your literary life?
1: Yeah, I definitely think so. It was much easier to convince my parents. Like, there was like a hot minute where I just told them I wanted to audition for theater, and that was a no. <laughs> that was a no, um, which was which was which was good because I would have been terrible at it. Um, creative writing was much easier because I think it was always in the back of their minds, like, oh, she can go to law
2: school, so. <laughs> Um, that is what they seem to want us to do. Everybody. Right? Yeah, and I'm like no. Yeah. Um
1: I I do think that there's a, a huge connection. I think that it that being such a theater nerd helped me understand dialogue in a way um sort of how to make something sound natural. I did playwriting for a while when I when I was in college and and I i've i've written a couple of plays and had one performed once which was really crazy um and a lot of fun but yeah and i also think that there's something about the idea of losing yourself in somebody else and inhabiting somebody else and getting to understand like their a character's thoughts and motivations that has really really helped me when it comes to to writing in prose um i mean and and nonfiction as well, because that also goes for me. You know, one of the weird things about being a memoir being a memoirist is you have to go back and like look at yourself, especially the self that you were when you made horrible decisions, and be like, "What was I thinking? What motivated me to do this insane thing?" <laughs> so yeah, I, I feel like there's a, a very definite connection there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that reflection also is like, it takes a long time to write a book. And when you're writing about your life, your life keeps going. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, I'm curious if you can maybe talk a little bit about The Tiger in the Cage, your memoir um, that came out with Soft School in 2022. And uh, its general process or, you know, whether that's, you know, different drafts that appeared, how those drafts changed over time, its timeline to publication. What's the the journey of that book?
1: Um, it took me forever. <laughs> It took me forever to write that book um, and to, to find all of the right pieces that belonged in it. Um, some like the, the Freud pieces were some of the earliest things that the, the Freud pieces and the teacher piece were some of the earliest nonfiction that I wrote. So I'm talking 2008, 2009, I wrote those, but they were the last thing to go into the book, which. Okay. Why was that? <laughs> um, Okay, so the book had a lot. It had a lot of different forms. It started out as a collection of essays that had this like horrible theme that I thought was going to work, um, which I was like, I'm gonna call it "About Human," and every essay is gonna have "About Human" in the in the title. So there's actually an artifact online that's like on the Rumpus that's. an essay version of one of the sections that's about the human hymen membrane disambiguation. Um, so obviously that didn't work because, <laughs> because it was terrible and it was forced. Um, and I had an agent contact me and worked on the manu- on putting the manuscript into. "Quote unquote normal form," you know, sort of making it chronological, um, very traditional narrative. And then um, that agent was like, "I'm going to have to pass on this because it turns out it, it doesn't work that way. You need to put it back the way it was before, <laughs> where things were more. Um, the structure was different. So when I got my current, my um, my the agent who sold um, the Tiger in the Cage." I was extremely lucky because she could sort of see through and what the form needed to be. And she told me to read um, Meander Spiral Explode. And from that, I read about the the fractal chapter and I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is is fractal. One of the things that was so difficult for me was writing a story that had no ending because there's no happy ending. Um, There's not even really... I I don't even really know a whole lot more about what is going on in my body at the end of the book than I did at the beginning. Um, And a fractal, so the fractal image and fractal form really resonated with me because it's just something that repeats over and over and over again. Um, And I actually got the form of the book from listening to Ravel's Bolero um, cause it, it's kind of that same thing, right? It's like a theme that repeats and repeats and then other instruments join in. And then at the end, everything kind of collapses, which is very much how I felt the story of the, of the book went. So I was a crazy person and listened to Ravel's Bolero two to three times a day.
2: <laughs> I love that. That's such an interesting place to draw like a form inspiration
1: from. Yeah. Yeah. It was from R- Bolero and believe it or not, the light of the seven from Game of Thrones, going back to the nerd issue. um, I I read an an essay by an interview with the composer about um, how that song was constructed. And he talked about basically how the different parts are people learning more things, and then the picture becomes more clear. And then obviously, everything literally explodes at the end. (laughs) So I yeah, I used those two things to form the backbone of the structure literally cut the book up into tiny pieces, color-coded them, and then arranged them all over my kitchen floor. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that is the way to do it. And mm-hmm. not dissimilar to putting together a book of poems, right? Like organizing in that way too. Um, yeah, I want to talk about the vignette form a little bit. So something that struck me when I was rereading the book, um, I guess I should tell you my experience with the book, uh, which is, and I'm not sure if you know this, but we, so we used to share an agent. Mm-hmm. Um The agent that sold this book was my agent also before she left the industry. And I was working on a memoir at the time that she was trying to sell and thinking about how to reorganize and how to structure. And it was, I think, right after this book had sold, but pretty far before it was published. And she sent me this manuscript to read. And um, I don't know if if you were aware. I was not aware. (laughs) Okay. So I'm also curious to hear... Because, to me, I mean, it was years ago that I read it, but it doesn't seem like it was so different, you know, in the final version that it was published in. But my experience was, you know, I, I was, like, going to skim it a little bit and be like, okay, well, what's the structure doing? What do I need to learn from this? Um, and then I ended up sitting in my bed on my laptop and reading the entire thing in a day because I was just so hooked um, and just did not want to stop. And I thought about it for days afterwards. So basically, this is me revealing that for three years, I've been dying to talk to you about this book. Oh. <laughs> but something that struck me when I was rereading it is, um, so you talk about a relationship with a a teacher, um, Mm -hmm. that was, I think in, was it third grade, fifth grade, grade. correct me on that fifth grade. Okay. So a relationship with a teacher in fifth grade, um, and how you used to write secrets or stories or snippets of things from your life and put them on her desk as little folded notes. Um, and I wonder if that, uh, feels in any way related to the vignettes and having these sort of fragmented snippets throughout that tells your story?
1: That's a really good question. And that's something that I've I've never really thought about it before, because I try not to think about, (laughs) you know, um, that experience. But I think you're right. I think it very much there's there's a kind of intimacy to the vignette that I, I felt was important. For the book i have to i have to confess i did not come up with the vignettes actually the agent suggested that and then i was like oh you're totally right <laughs> this needs to be broken up into smaller pieces because the the big ones are it's, it's just i feel like it's too much and, and too heavy if when it, I, I feel like it was too much and too heavy it was too much of a slog to go through and it was probably too much, like, oh my god, you're just saying the same thing again and again. <laughs> when it was in big pieces, but yeah, I liked I liked the vignette form because it allows me to sneak some poet tools in there, um, to use white space in some tricky ways, and do some do some more experimental things with the structure. But yeah, I, I felt like I went into writing knowing that that the story would be a lot for people to take. Um, I had to reveal a lot of details that people don't usually reveal and just talk about like bodily functions that people don't usually talk about. So I I wanted it to be brief. And honestly, it was easier for me as as a writer because I'm so used to poetry to deal with it in a compressed space than you know, these sort of, like, long chapters that I had before.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that also reveals, like, how much of a collaborative process a book can be sometimes, right? Like, um, it's no less your book, because uh, the agent was the one who suggested that form. Um, But, you know, I'm, I'm curious a little bit to hear about you know, not only how maybe the editors at soft school helped shape it as well, or how other people in your life who read the manuscript helped shape it along the way, but what was it like um, when it's not only shaping the work, but it's also sort of shaping the narrative that's being told about this very personal experience that has, um, you know, in some ways really impacted your life. Was, did that feel like a more, more or less emotional process than you expected? And, and what was that like to collaborate with an editor on something like that? <laughs>
1: Another good question. Um, I nobody had read it
2: um, before
1: it went to my to the, to my agent. Nobody had read the manuscript. One of the sad things about leaving academia is that it means leaving a lot of your friends behind, sadly, and um, it means leaving leaving access to a writing community and or easy access to a writing community behind, especially if you live in Alabaster, Alabama. <laughs> Sadly, um, I, I feel like things are changing, um, but yet nobody had read the manuscript before, um, and I think I've been w- working on it for so long that it felt less strange to send it out. Um, but yeah, it it was it was interesting to to work with an editor because it wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be. I think that by the time I sent it in, I was just like, rip it apart, please. Like (laughs) literally like tear this apart into a thousand pieces and, and help me figure out how to put it back together. Um, My editor at Soft Skull was absolutely incredible. Like she was, she was, she was amazing. Um, Sarah Lynn Rogers, incredible person. She was a great editor and she, We actually kept the majority of the book the way it was. Um, There weren't a whole lot of edits, but she found the places where I really needed to dig deeper. Um, And one of those places was the ending, which was the thing that I struggled with the most because I just didn't know, how do I conclude this with no conclusion? And she helped me to figure out which strands I needed to weave in at the end and, and where I needed to go. So that was really good.
2: Yeah. um, I'm curious, too, because when you write a memoir, you you are telling this really intimate story of your body, right? Like the subtitle is a memoir of a body in crisis um, and of your life experience. But it's inevitable when you're writing about a self or in a life to have to write about other people and their impact on your life. Um, Were there any concerns about how people in your life or people that you wrote about would, um, you know, take the book or has since publication, has it prompted any conversations with people in your life?
1: I was terrified. Like I, (laughs) after I sold the book, I straight up had a two week panic attack. Like I, I was so completely terrified. Um, and I remember I did one revision where I just went through the book and I, I was really concerned. I didn't want to make anybody feel, look bad or feel bad. And I didn't want to blame anybody else for some of the bad decisions that I made or, you know, some stupid things that I did or just what was going on with me in general. Um, my parents both, and particularly my mother, carry around a lot of guilt because for some reason my mom thinks that she could have done more when obviously she could not. Like she she did more than anything. And so I just, I was like, I don't want to make her feel that way. So I kind of went through and was like, would I be okay having this conversation? And if, if that answer was a no, it, it went to, went to the wayside a little bit. Um, I was, I was terrified. I guess I was terrified. You never know how people are going to see it's like that moment when you introduce your parents to like somebody who you're dating you or even your friends, like you, you never know how they're going to see your family because family is such an intimate thing. And I was just—I wanted everybody to love them as much as I loved them, and to see how good they were, but also how funny and real <laughs> um, of people they were. Um, and that has been one of the nicest things I think since the book is that that people people have recognized and, all, and mentioned, like, "Oh my God, your parents were amazing." So that that has really helped.
2: Yeah, that's something that I was really struck by, too, is um, the closeness of your relationship with your parents. You know, you describe how much caretaking and advocacy, both with like the medical community, but also just like helping you take care of your physical body during your illnesses, um, how much how much they were there for you. And it seems like there was a closeness that maybe was there before, but seemed really brought out by that experience. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, your relationship with them would be as strong today without having those medical problems that they helped you through?
1: I think it would be a strong, probably just, just with the the kind of people that they are, but it might've been different. I think that the kind of problems that I had kind of cloistered us in a way. Um, There's one scene in the book. um, And so (laughs) <laughs> just as a warning, this is going, going to be kind of gross. But but I'm just like, this is just like what happens. And, and people don't realize like how bad things can get. So when I was in sixth grade, my periods got super duper bad. And in the book, I think I mentioned it once, but this is something that will go on for three days a month, every month. I would pass out vomit <laughs> and have severe diarrhea all at the same time. Um, so it was horrible. And I just remember that a lot of the times my, my parents would have to both be in the bathroom with me because one of them would have to hold me up, um, so that I didn't pass out. And one of them would have to like make sure that I didn't aspirate when, when I threw up because, you know, I'm like crouching on the floor, puking and passing out at the same time. And, um, There was a lot of stuff like that. Like a lot of times that they had to come and get me to school because I would unexpectedly start my period and just bleed everywhere and pass out and throw up. Um, But that, you know, especially, Oh God, I'm going to reveal my age. Um, That would have been like 1991. So um, 1991, 1992. So back then you really did you know, it just was not something that you talked about, but it was something that completely controlled my life. And I would not have gotten through without my parents help.
2: Yeah, it was night, it was the 90s, which is uh, not a time in which we talk very openly about women's bodies. It was also in Alabama, which is not a place where there is a lot of, uh, you know, openness about the facts of women's bodies. And you grew up in Catholic and you went to a Catholic school for some of your formative years. Um, So that, you know, that seems like a really driving force in the book, all of these different areas of society that um, not only are asking you to be sort of quiet about this thing that is a very loud experience in your life um, and affects, you know, your daily life in so many ways, but also uh, doesn't really have any sort of representation for what you're going through. Um, other than the other women around you, some of whom like your mother seem to be really great advocates and some of whom like the, I wrote just down tampon, mom, (laughs) the woman who, um, at the beach house who, when you started your period, gave you a tampon, and was like, figure it out. Um, a super plus tampon. (laughs) Yes. Yes, first of all, yeah, to give any, uh, what, like 12, 13-year-old girl (laughs) a tampon uh, that big that she's never used before and then ask her to figure it out, that's a lot. Um, But there is also, you know, because women are taught to have a lot of shame and silence around their bodies, um, there's not a lot of openness about the variety of different ways that women experience menstruation um, or or anything related to reproduction. and that just feels like another another way in which uh, this struggle that was already really intense was amplified. Um, and then, so it's it's sort of like asking you to um, not talk about this thing that's happening to you so no one knows what's happening to you. And then once people do know and you try to address it uh, with a doctor, there's a, they don't really believe you. And then once they do believe you, they don't really know how to help you because there's been no research about this. Um and so everything kind of feels like a catch twenty um, two. But going back to a little bit to growing up Catholic, um, you talk a, a little bit about the narrative of sin and punishment, and how if something bad happens to you, you deserved it, um, or you sort of brought it on yourself somehow. How did that shape your, you know, understanding of what you were going through, and even your choice to seek some medical help?
1: Yeah, that it, I think that. Especially if, if you're like a, a Catholic middle schooler and you're, you know, you're forced to reckon with this thing that, you know, you can't talk about and that, you know, you consider that to be bad because like, what else are these, the things you can't talk about? It's sin, right? You know, um, so, you know, that you only have a conversation with a priest about that in the confessional after you said, perfectly said the act of contrition. <laughs> so you'll get in trouble if you don't. Um, yeah. So I, I feel like, especially at that point, I had, um, an extremely conservative Catholic, um, t- but she, the woman who taught me catechism in fifth grade was extremely conservative, but also like really kind of like on the fringes. I'm not thinking of the right word. But um, there's kind of like a Mary Colton part of Alabama that she, you know, that she was involved in. So needless to say, things get really, really intense. Um, thankfully, she was only there for like two months before they were like, whoa, <laughs> we need to watch out. Um, but yeah, it it just kind of like got into my head, you know, OK, well, this this must be a punishment for something I've done because I couldn't have my life affected in such a huge, drastic way unless I'd done something, you know, like I, I had to have done something for this. Um, my mother would if I ever said anything like that would be like, <laughs> Emily, Suzanne, come on, you know. Like that woman was crazy. Like, don't listen to her. You know, like God isn't punishing you. This is, this is genetic. Well, we don't know if it's genetic of course, cause there's not enough research in it, but um, pretty much every woman in my family, ha- my mother's family has it. Um, so yeah, so she would, she would definitely knock the sense into me when it came to that, but it's really hard to come up with, to get away from that mindset once that's the mindset you've been embroiled in day after day for so long. And it's really, I think in a way it was a way for me to explain what was happening. Like it's a horrible way to explain what was happening, but it's better than, I guess it's better than just like sometimes things like this happen, um, which is a difficult thing for somebody who's in sixth grade to understand.
2: Of course, yeah. And you also mentioned the confessional, too, um, which is a really... I've always found it really interesting um, that in any faith that is so concerned with uh, sin and keeping sin quiet, that then you have a little box that you can go into and sort of let everything out. Um, And I was thinking about the relationship between the confessional and confessional writing um, or the, the purpose or power of confessing something in writing kind of in a little room alone to your reader. Um, and you talk a little bit about uh, being fed these narratives of women and martyrdom and the female martyrs in the Catholic tradition. Um, and then I, I, I want to read a little excerpt from your book, if that's okay. Um, you talk about being in love with like Tori Amos and Alanis Morissette and Liz fair, these sort of like uh, high powered female singers. And you write, we love them for their anger, for their bravery, for their strength but I didn't focus on their strength. I focused on their ability, not only to admit that they were broken, but to articulate how they were broken and where and when and who had broken them. I envied their ability to confess, to declare, to admit that sometimes they had broken themselves. Um, And I found that so powerful. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what the purpose of confessional writing is to you or um, if you see that related to your faith in any way, but also just on its own, what, what does that term mean to you?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think
2: that it's
1: strange or not. Co- I think it's, there's no coincidence in the fact that I have not been to confession since I started going to school for creative writing. Because <laughs> um, it is, it's very much like, the page is very much like a confessional booth where you can, you can, say these secrets that are on your mind. I used to be completely obsessed with confessional poets, um, like obsessed. When I was in graduate school, I did a lot of work on on confessional poetry um, and just completely obsessed. I think that also I was so obsessed with like Tor- Tori Amos and Alanis Morissette and Hole, especially Hole, is that it allowed allowed me a way to like express anger that I didn't allow myself to express on the page for years and years and years, because it still felt like there were some, and I feel like this is true of the confessional poets as well. Like if you get into deep conversations with people who are, who have like high, highly developed ideas of confessionalism, there are certain things that you can confess and there are certain things you can't. Um, There's some things that can, com- you know, count as confessionalism. And certain intentions that confound that count as confessional, and some that don't. Um, so it, even though I would be confessional, in only I could only like do it in the way that people had done it before. Like there were a lot of like sad sadness and depression poems, um, but no poems about like what was actually really happy, you know, happening in my body. And when I did talk about like having a weird relationship with my body it was like i just remember i was in graduate school and i wrote like there's some poem that was like a jar of night with no stars in it like i could only do it through like the most obscure and bizarre images ever um because i didn't know i didn't know how to confess the secret of the relationship with my body and i didn't i didn't necessarily know if if i could confess if that was possible so I'm not sure if I'm actually answering this question. I feel like I'm rambling.
2: <laughs> no, I mean, that's that's great. Um, you know, I studied also in my, my PhD dissertation was on confessional writing and specifically confessional writing by women. Um, and, you know, a, a connection that I'm drawing now is like the confessional writers in the 60s, the confessional poets like Sylvia Plath and Anne Sexton, we remember that movement being made popular by women, but they were also the ones who took the brunt of the um, criticism against confessional writing in general. And a lot of it was because they were writing about things like their bodies or their relationships to being wives and mothers and uh, get, having abortions and reproductive health. Um, and those were seen as the things that you don't write about. Um, that sort of you know mainstream poetry tried to kind of kick them out for that. But that's also what we love about them and we find special about their work. Um, So it's just interesting how much hasn't changed, right? (laughs) Yeah. And I can't tell you how many times people have told me, like, Sylvia Plath isn't a real poet. Which is a wild thing to say about one of the most famous
1: poets. (laughs) I know. It's insane. And I'm just like, will you look at what she has done on this page? Like, tell me that there's no value in that. I mean, she's just, she's one of the most fascinating poets I've ever I've ever looked at and it just makes me insane when people denigrate her because of what she wrote about.
2: Yeah. When you were in grad school, did you ever encounter a similar kind of criticism about confessional work either, you know, in response to your own writing or in response to like some of the female poets you were studying?
1: Oh God. Yeah. Yeah.
2: What did that look like? Yeah. I'm curious if, I mean, you don't have to like yeah. shit talk anyone, but if you want to, I'm here for that.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. Um... Yeah, it was, it, it was interesting. I, I do feel like there was that kind of response. I had to change. I feel like I had to change the way that I wrote really, really quickly when I was in graduate school. Um, and once, in once it's just because I was like, Oh man, I am not good at this. And I really, really, really need to work. Um, I feel like sometimes I was leaning on, on confessionalism as a, as a crutch and, um, Leaning on the narrative as a crutch as well. I think and I had to sort of find my way out of that. Um, I, I felt that at times my privacy as a female writer was not as it was not honored as much as the privacy of the male writers in the room. Um, and I saw that with other writers as well, um, others, others female writers as well. I, I feel like there was there's kind of that unspoken rule of like the this the I is not the writer. You know, you talk about it as a speaker. Um and I feel like it that the there was transgression of that rule a lot more with female writers than male writers.
2: That's so interesting. So do you feel like there was almost a um, assumption that the women in the room could only be writing from their own eye versus a speaker eye that they constructed? Or do you feel like there was even maybe like, a a other men in the room, uh, that there was like a drive that they wanted more of your trauma or more of your personal life. Um, I don't know if I'm quite getting that right, but was that part of it? No, that was not part of it, I don't think. It was it was
1: interesting. It did seem like it it was almost like men are dealing with the bigger ideas and the, the women are um dealing with the smaller ideas. I do have to say that like I had some incredible female teachers um in, in graduate school. So um and I had some incredible male teachers in graduate school, but there did there did seem to sort of be the like, oh well that I has to be her. Um and not so much like that. I has to be him. Um, I had my endometriosis revealed in a class one time, not by me
2: and not by my choice. Um, but oh, it was-, was it because you had written about it or someone else just sort of shared that openly? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it was because I had, I had, it might've been the, the jar full of knife poem,
2: <laughs> but it was one of the poems that was kind
1: of about having a difficult relationship with my body. And the critique was kind of like, we don't really know what exactly is going on here, which was fair at that time. Um, but yeah, then it, then like what, my um, illness actually came into the discussion, not um, of my choice. And I never saw something like that happen with a, with a male writer. It might have.
2: Yeah. Oh, I have so much to say about that. <laughs> um, well, I've heard of of friends friends of mine, women who are writers, who are fiction writers, who are you know writing short stories where the assumption of the class is that everything that hap- you know everything that they're workshopping is fiction, uh, to whatever degree we can call anything we write fiction, right? But where that same assumption has been made of oh well, this must be your experience, you must have done this bad thing that your character did, and the men in the room are assumed to have just like created from magic their stories. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and what you said about like men are dealing with the big subjects and what, and I mean, it's so funny that, uh, something as wild and complex and relevant as like embodiment of being alive. Like the human body is seen as a small thing or a trivial thing. Um, yeah, oh, so many thoughts and feelings. Yeah. <laughs> we could talk about this forever, so I will move on, but, um, <laughs> I will say that, um, yeah.
1: this summer between my second and third year of grad school i read alicia suskin ostricker stealing the language and it changed my life and it changed the way that i approached writing after that because that was Amazing. like okay
2: <laughs> yeah what is, i'm not familiar with that book what did that book do for you
1: it is incredible um she it talks about how female writers um have been denigrated and not appreciated and not um considered like poets because it, it was just like playing the piano, like not playing the piano, but needlework, needlework. It was just like, you know, poetry was just like needlework. It was just something cute that, that women did to like make themselves seem cultured and pass the time. And, um, she kind of talks about how female poets had to Dickinson, especially, uh, kind of reclaim language and change it into something of their own in, order to to do the thing that we call poetry (laughs) but it's it's incredible
2: yeah and you know it's interesting about I mean Emily Dickinson too in so many ways refashioned what we think of as poetry um and yet like a lot of her male editors wanted to make her more traditional wanted to make her syntax and her punctuation more traditional the things that we you know that was revolutionary that we know her and and love her for now Um, yeah
1: and it's it's only recently that we've actually, I'm, I'm pointing it at the book on my shelf behind me, but it's only recently where we've had an edition of the fascicles so we can see
2: how she wanted her poems to be presented. Like that's insane. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. That's amazing. Um, switching gears a little, but maybe not a lot. Um, so uh, writing a memoir, uh, especially a memoir about trauma, about embodied trauma specifically, um, You know, my experience in in my own memoir writing, and please tell me if this is not your experience, but my experience with writing a memoir was that um, most of the emotional processing that I did about the thing I was writing about happened through the writing itself or happened through exploration and research that I did for the book specifically. Um, Was that your experience? And then, you know, how did the process of writing the book itself influence the way that you understand and carry this story from your life?
1: That definitely happened with me. There are things that I didn't even realize were extremely intense moments in my life until, like the, For instance, there's um, Cassandra. There's I have a, a friend in Cassandra in the book who's actually two people. Both. It's 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 kind of like an amalgam character, one of those. But uh, I I didn't realize just how big of a of an emotional effect that whole situation had on me and, and um, just huge effect on my life and how I really felt about it because there's, that's the rawest passage in the book for me is the one where I kind of like directly apologized to her in the book. Um, And I, it was only through the writing of it that I got to that emotional place. But I think it, It freed me in such a huge way to all of my life. I had been carrying this huge secret and just pretending like I'm totally fine. Everything's fine. Um, There's nothing going on and felt shame about it as well, because I felt like I couldn't talk about it because it was in some way disgusting that. I was having, you know, you couldn't say like, I have problems with my periods or I have endometriosis and having it, all of that out there, it has just truly freed me and made me feel like more of a whole person. Cause before it was like, I just cut myself up into slivers that were appropriate for different situations. And very few people saw the whole thing. If anybody saw the whole thing. And uh, I feel like I'm, I'm able to be more, myself. And I'm not ashamed of it anymore. I'm just like, it's a, it's a body. Bodies that have uteruses in them menstruate most of them, you know, these are just things that happen in your body. (laughs) So it's, it's made me, it's, it's kind of like released the steam and made me a much more whole person.
2: That's beautiful. That's so wonderful. Um, you know, something else that I picked up on uh, and that you you sort of explicitly do in the book is uh, show these competing narratives about your body. So there's, uh, you know, at certain times you talk to your mom about what she remembers of a certain situation or a certain doctor. Um, and there's moments where she tells you, like, oh, maybe don't say that because we don't want to get sued or we don't want the doctors to be mad at us. Um, and then there are moments that I found frustrating and shocking, as I'm sure that you did in real life, where, um, you know, there's a medical narrative written about a surgery that you have that goes wrong and causes a lot of problems for you. And that is the accepted narrative of what happened, even though the evidence of what really happened is on and in your body and is not being taken seriously because there's this written record by a doctor that's being believed over, you know, what happened to you. So um, I'm wondering if in some way, you know, putting this book together was a way to sort of subsume those competing narratives or maybe put them all in one place. Um, How do you feel like those other narratives about your experience fit into your own story?
1: Yeah, I felt like that was a really important thing for me to do. And even though
2: the book did not work
1: chronologically in a traditional narrative, um, it was important for me to do that because I needed to piece it together because so much of my story had been told by other people um and the med- getting my medical records the process of getting it was like a three-year process to get all of my medical records and um yeah my hysterectomy was really messed up and i had these these like horrendous bleeding episodes afterwards and everybody was like oh you're fine you're fine nothing happens and then um i got my when i got my medical records not only were pieces of it labeled as missing the most important pieces of it were labeled as missing. Like the the step by step, what they did during the surgery, not there. It says you know pages pages missing, pages not found, um, and even just the the small like brief overview description had been edited three times. One of which was after I went to the emergency room a month later for severe bleeding. Um, so I feel like it allowed me to finally have agency over it and uh, over my narrative and be like, okay, I'm not crazy. Like it's missing. Like you edited it. It says it right here in black and white. And, um, on a personal note, it's helped me going to the, cause it's, it still happens. It's still going on. Like I, I had a, a doctor, I went to an orthopedic doctor a while back, um, a while back being last year just <laughs> i just southerned that up Sorry, <laughs> time is weird now <laughs> it's weird. it doesn't it doesn't really exist um yeah i went to an orthopedic doctor who was like oh well your herniated disc has gotten bad you've got bones bars you have arthritis in your discs in your in your back now there are two discs above and one disc below and they're herniating as well but the real problem is that you had a hysterectomy before you had children so <sighs> Your, your your pain is really in your head because it's coming from this, this emotional thing. And I, before I had written the memoir, I don't think I could have done it, but after writing the memoir, I was like, I'm done now. I'm going to, to talk to somebody else.
2: Yeah. I mean, that is something, there's so many sources of tension, not only between you and your body doing these things that you're out of control of. And that no one seems to really know what's going on, but the active gaslighting of medical sure. professionals. Um, there's one section I think where you you talk about um, what you know, what you're experiencing, and they're like, "Wait, well, but you're not though. Like you can't be because this is what the medical research says about how this thing happens." And rather than say, "Let's do some experiments, figure out what your body is doing," they're just like, "No, this is what we know, and therefore this is the only truth," um, and actively disregarding the fact that your body doesn't follow these established medical narratives. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that other than like, fuck those guys. I think right, I wrote right? fuck this guy like so many times in my margins.
1: <laughs> um, and it's, it, it was such a bizarre thing to go through. And it, I think it really does show like how much gaslighting and how much your narr- narrative was co-opted because it, I would be like, okay, you can tell me I'm not experiencing pain." pain. Fine. You don't believe me that I'm experiencing pain, but like blood is an actual thing. Like, how are you telling me that I'm not bleeding? And like, there's a moment, um, after, so after I, when I went to the emergency room with the bleeding, I got, I had to have my cuff cauterized. And afterwards I went to the bathroom and passed a blood clot that was like the size of the palm of my hand showed it to the nurse. She called the doctor and they're like, she's fine. Just send her home. It's totally fine. So it's just like the extreme version of, you know, just, just the extremity of what they can say, like, doesn't, doesn't exist is, is it's crazy.
2: Yeah. Well, so that's something else that, uh, has really stuck with me since my first reading of this manuscript. Um, and I hope that this doesn't sound insensitive or that you don't take this the wrong way, but it's almost written with the tension of like a horror story. Um, and the horror is that, you know, uh, this illusion of control that we think we have over our bodies breaking down in real time over and over again in new ways. Um, and then when you think finally that you've found someone who will help you, uh, then, there's these new symptoms that pop up that, Still can't be controlled. So, like for me, this the moment, the big moment where I was like, "Is this a horror story?" Um, is after you get your hysterectomy, which is the thing that you've sort of been debating throughout the course of the book, mm-hmm. that some doctors have told you, you know, no, you need to have children first, or have ignored your pain in other ways, or gaslit you in other ways. And then once you decide to take this step to address, you know, the majority of your medical problems, then afterwards you still have the same bleeding, um, and it's almost like I think I wrote ghost uterus. <laughs> <laughs> At some point. Um, and I wrote down That's this.
0: What line. Best <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> That's what the best printed
1: I call it. Really? That's what the best thing did I call it. For real. For real.
0: Mm-hmm. Well there's almost I mean
2: yeah, it reminded me a little bit of like a moment in a horror movie where you think that they've done, they've done the exorcism, they've solved the ghosts, they've unhaunted their house, and then no. you see like something behind you in the mirror and you realize, oh, oh shit, it's not actually done. Uh, it has that kind of narrative tension, which I think just masterfully you know speaks to your control over the writing too and, and the pacing and everything. Um, But I wrote down this line, Um, there's a section where you go to visit a doctor and it's Halloween and the doctor has like a skeleton hanging around Um, and you write, uh, it's a reminder that we are all haunted by something inside our bodies and outside our control. Um, And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to uh, maybe not horror as a genre, but maybe some of those, uh, those pacings, those tensions, those tropes, if that feels like something that you intended for the book or... Um, or just to control in general and the, the scariness of, of being out of control and what that means to the way that you wrote this book.
1: Yeah, I'm going to make a confession, which is that I am this I'm like the the scarediest, scaredest, scaredy cat on the planet. Like I, I cannot handle horror movies. <laughs> like I, I, I seriously can't. I'm trying to think. Um, what's the, oh, the closest thing that I've been able to handle to horror is like stranger things. And even then there are parts that are way too much. Like, I just can't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so to be honest, I don't really know a lot of the tropes and things like that, but I can tell you it felt like that. It, it, and it still feels like that sometimes. Like, um, I feel like there's a kind of like twist in reality that happens in horror, um, where You know, it's like you realize all of a sudden, like, oh, I'm not quite in the world as I understood it. And that's part of what's what's terrifying about it. And, um, yeah, I feel like that happens constantly because both in terms of just what my body was doing, because I'm like, how are you having a period? You don't have a uterus. Um, And in terms of like how the doctors were reacting to that.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I'm curious because you know, as I mentioned, when you write a book about your life, your life continues to go on after the writing of the book. Is there anything, um, anything at all, you know, however you want to take this, anything that's happened, or that you've had insight about or discovered since the writing or publication of the book that you feel like you wish could go in the book? Or, or does it feel pretty complete as it is?
1: Actually, pretty much the latest insight that I got is in the book.
2: <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, yes. talk about that yes. a little bit
1: at the very, cause I I added it at the last minute. Um, because right, this was like the last set of drafts that I could make changes. I had just had two appointments. One, um, one was, I found out that, um, my spinal column is collapsing as a result of, um, Dapolupron taking it for so long and, and, um, not having any add back estrogen. So, um, I have, herniated disc, which is what's causing one of the, one of the issues. Um, and the other was that my, my doctor finally had a theory about, um, what was going on with, with the bleeding after the hysterectomy, but, uh, yeah, since then, (laughs) not much. Um, I've finally have, um, my doctor is finally 10 years after the hysterectomy, um, a different doctor is, is finally trying something to see if they can get it to stop. Um, but it's actually made things worse. So I'm hoping that that will give us some information.
2: Yeah. It sounds like a lot of trial and error. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, you know, If you have any advice or anything that you would maybe like to share, because this is endometriosis is something that is so understudied and yet so many women deal with it, Um, so many people deal with it and deal with associated problems that sort of branch off from endometriosis. Is there any insider advice that you would share with someone who maybe is discovering that they have this and maybe seeking medical treatment for the first time or maybe not even at that stage yet?
1: Yeah, I would just say, follow your gut, you know your body, you know what's happening in your body. And um, just because one doctor says one thing, that doesn't mean that another doctor, it, it takes a long time to find a doctor who you can really trust and who can really help you. So get a second opinion, get a fifth and a sixth opinion, uh, keep going if if you can't find if, if your doctor doesn't help. Um, Yeah, it's awful because it takes, I think the average is seven years to get diagnosed with endometriosis. And like the official diagnosis is only with the surgical procedure, which can cause, of course, other problems that, you know, it is a relatively simple procedure, but it can like puncture your bowel as (laughs) what happened with me. Um, So yeah, just, just keep faith in yourself and know that that you're right, you know what's happening in your body. And please, somebody do some research on it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, I would love to talk about what you're working on now. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, things that are in the works for you, sort of where your writing life is at at the moment?
1: Yeah, it's in a weird place. It's in, it's in a very strange place. Um, I'm kind of trying to figure out who I am after the memoir and, and what I want to do after the memoir. One thing I've been doing lately is going back to poetry. I, every year, April is, you know, national, for National Poetry Month, um, a lot of people write a poem a day. And every year I say, oh, I'm not gonna do it this year. And then at like 10 PM on April 1st, I'm like, oh crap, here I go. <laughs> so I just got off of a poem a day project. Um, and I'm thinking about putting together another collection but I also just wanted to do something that was completely different. So I am working on a fantasy novel, which is a lot of fun. So we'll see.
2: Yeah. How is that shift into fantasy? Um, it's so interesting, too. I'm, I'm sort of in this mode, too, after working on a memoir for many years, working only on fiction. Um, but do you feel like the shifting into fantasy, a world that is so far removed, has anything to do with having just publish this very personal project?
1: I think so. Um, I also, even though like at my high school, we were not allowed to read genre. Um, We weren't supposed to read genre, but I would like secretly sneak it in um, because I really do. I think that fantasy and genre writing is a place where we can understand our world. And it's a way to really explore ideas because you're you're in a completely different setting, so you have a totally different capacity for talking about things and the way that that we face things. So, I also wanted to write something like the, the the main character in the book has issues with her periods, and I just really wanted to write a book about a girl who has these kinds of issues but can still do amazing things and will hopefully make other people seeing you know feel seen because there aren't many fictional characters who have period issues as well so it's just fun too it's so much fun to make up a whole other world and get to make up words that's my favorite part (laughs) it's a lot of fun
0: Okay, that was Aaron Slaughter's conversation with Emma Bolden. You can get a copy of Emma Bolden's The Tiger in the Cage, wherever you buy books, which is also where you can get a copy of Aaron Slaughter's story collection, a manual for How to Love Us. And if you want to check out our books, too, you can get them anywhere, but especially at autofocuslit.com books. Check it out. Okay, that's it. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening. Till next time.